Hey, everybody. We have got a packed Thursday show for you today. It's a short week, so we have to give you like a double length show. All right. Yes, the Obi-Wan series finale uh, is tremendous, and we're going to talk about it all. You can skip ahead if you haven't seen the finale yet uh, and go to the other great content in the episode. But Lon Harris is back with us to discuss, yeah, what this means for streaming and the episode itself. Uh, very yeah. satisfying for me. Very uh, satisfying conversation. And again, there's still lots of other content coming up. We're going to do a quick news hit on the FDA taking action against Juul. And then I've got an interview with a Series C healthcare CEO. They say it can't be done, but he's trying to disrupt drug prices. Yes, this is uh, AJ from Capital RX, laser focused on transparency and prescription drug pricing, like the Mark Cuban company, which we'll also have on the show at some point. And just, you know, great to see founders... Uh, doing the right thing especially with this news of jewel which did the wrong thing for a decade definitely we're really it's really interesting because we have that news and then a ceo who quite specifically is saying i'm not taking the dirty money there you that's go. the money we're never going to take it's going to be a great show all right stick with us this week in startups is brought to you by Byrace dev hiring a team of experienced developers doesn't need to be hard slow expensive or risky go to byrace.dev slash twist and schedule a 20-minute chat to get a development team you'll love and get $10,000 off when you sign your first contract. Thorn. Thorn empowers people to take control of their long-term well-being with the proactive science-based approach to health. Through a variety of at-home tests, Thorn teaches you about what your body needs and provides the right high-quality certified nutritional supplements for you. To get started and take 10% off your first order, Head to thorn.com slash you slash twist and ad quick. If most of your advertising dollars are going to digital ads, it's time to diversify. Out of home advertising like billboards offers a low cost, high value reach. Ad quick makes it easy to plan, buy and measure all in one place. Visit adquick.com slash twist and mention twist to get $1,000 off your first campaign. All right, everybody. Uh, everybody's favorite day of the week is here. It's Thursday. Thursday is when we have Lon Harris on. He's hey, L-O-N-S on Twitter. He does inside.com says streaming and does a couple of other projects. Where else can people find you, Lon Harris? Oh, there's the, uh, I do a podcast with Hal Rudnick where we talk about streaming shows every week. That's called Binge Boys. It's on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And Binge Boys. I'm Binge Boys, that's right. And I write for uh, Honest Trailers on Screen Junkies. That's the big YouTube Honest Trailer show. You can find that at Honest Trailers or go to Fandom Entertainment. And that's where we do the weekly Honest Trailer commentaries where I give my thoughts and opinions and review of whatever we did the Honest Trailer on. Uh, that week, it was the Halo series we did this week, uh, the ooh, Showtime nice. Paramount yeah. Plus I, I Halo I didn't get series. to finish it. Again, we I are really drowning the stream. I really liked it. I really liked that. Yeah. My Lord. I, you know what? That's it. I'm going to, I'm a new thing for my team members. No more weekends. No, <laughs> we're now going to have Took everybody do time blocking for streaming. I want to see how much you people are well, streaming. We're going to have wow, to. There's a lot of streaming going on. Can you imagine? It took you two months, hours of streaming we're all doing. Two and a half months, I think, to finish the Halo series, but it was, I liked it. I mean, I'm like a child when it comes to entertainment. My needs are very simple. <laughs> it blows stuff up. Yeah. But I thought I think, it was surprisingly I, good. I think a lot of us were, were expecting a little more action. I didn't. A lot of the fans were yeah. annoyed that it doesn't follow the plot of the games. I don't mind that so much. But it felt it, it felt like a lot of brooding. A lot of it was mm. pretty ponderous. Actually, and I want to be, more. 
Spartans running around shooting aliens, you know? I think, you know what? You're totally right because it took me two and a half months to finish it. And the first few months was episodes one through five, which I was like, ugh. It's kind and of then a episode slot, six man. and episode nine are basically the video game. And you're like, yeah. yes. Yeah, I want the shooty shooty. Well, that's why I'm left not... with a positive feeling because, yeah. Less, less talk talk. Yeah. Less feelings. Right. <laughs> well, let's, let's get into Obi-Wan here. This is the, and of course, this is going to be filled with uh, spoilers. You can just look at your podcast player in the show notes and, and go ahead if you're on youtube.com slash this weekend. If you look in the summary, you hit that down carrot, you can open up the summary, the description of the video, and we put timestamps, so you can just go to the next timestamp. There you go. And, so and if you're that this. one guy on Twitter who's like, don't talk about Star Wars because I don't like it, we well, solved it for you. Yeah, <laughs> Molly, yeah. a, I don't know if you saw the new device, Molly, but people <laughs> want to talk about the weekly show. So what they do now is they say, uh, Obi-Wan spoilers below, and then yep. they do a dot, a dot, a dot, that. each with a new line, and then yeah. after about 10 dots down, so you have to open up the tweet, basically. Yeah, that's so, super smart. I just saw that today. Also super good smart. for engagement. I think mm -hmm. that's how you break the algorithm is if people open up your tweet, you know, they're more likely to smart. like it and engage. Yeah. I think you get more engagement. Anyway, episode six happened. Uh, the finale. The finale. That's it. And I think it feels like a, uh, Ewan is on the internet this week saying he wants to do more, maybe a season two, but this felt very like a final hmm. note to me. Yeah, I, I don't want to felt that way. That this two. felt like you could. This is like a cherry on top. Just chef's kiss. This mm -hmm. this seem seamlessly moves you into a new hope. We've got we've got everything in place. He's he's found Qui Gon. They're they're going through the canyon to his new cave home where Luke yeah. will find him. Uh, it just seems like I don't. What more is there to do? This leaves yeah. it on just a, a perfect like grace note, which. You could also be said for Rogue One, which seamlessly, literally frame by frame, that's connects true to it. So, well, and we know we're going to get we have Andor coming up, which is 24 right. episodes, two seasons, and it's the whole formation of the Rebel Alliance. So my yeah. bet would be some of the characters that we've met, uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr. as Roken, Kumail Nanjiani as uh, Haja. I feel like a lot of these faces might come up again because we're going to see the path get integrated into the Rebel Alliance. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Smith's Balogana. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's All these off. figures are now like in play because they've created the immediate, like the proto-rebellion. suit, Darth um, Vader. Oh, that, 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 Darth, like, mm -hmm. I love that. That was just to take a break. That moment where they had him refer to him as Darth. Darth which is kind Darth. of a kind of a retcon thing because when lucas wrote a new hope and has obi-wan kenobi refer to darth vader as just darth he didn't know that the standard would be all sith lords have a darth and then their name like darth sidious darth plagueis darth you know, you know like right yes. right that it's a title not so a name alleginis probably the actor didn't realize darth was a title thought it was just his name and so he That's refers funny. to him like well hello darth and so having you and McGregor do that here makes it a bit that he's doing instead of he doesn't know that his first name isn't Darth. That's uh, actually delightful, especially because it was such a kind of sweetly awkward delivery. Like he's like, right. Okay. Darth. D Darth. 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 That's your new name now. Now it's, and now it's a dig. Now right. it's, it's a like, dig. Yes. Yeah. You're just dark. Like, right. You're well, just, a, you're just another Anakin generic Sith. <gasps> I killed Anakin Skywalker. That's I'm good. Darth Vader now. He's like, well, hello, Darth. You know, like it's it's a, almost a joke at his expense now, which I like. Um, is it re, re now it I, re recreates that moment in A New Hope? It's like, oh, he knows what he's saying. I'm watching so many YouTube videos of like uh, you know people's reaction to this show and everything, and um, 
I got an Alec Guinness on his yacht talking about Star Wars in like 87 or something. It's a great video. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I just kept turning the pages. It was great. I mean, the dialogue was, it needed work. I mean, it was not <laughs> pleasant. <laughs> um, but, and he's like, somebody like writes in the comments, like, did you know he had like points in this? And then somebody, you know, the jumping off, it links to another video where somebody says, you had three points of the gross and Star Wars says, well, not that much. And it was clear Alec Guinness had made points on the gross of this thing yeah, and become, yeah, yeah. made many, many, many millions of dollars for a part he did not want to do, basically, or was, you know, and he, yeah. he said he no, punched up the dialogue. Point, at that point in his career, I mean, you know, we're talking about a, a Shakespearean actor, or like one 60s. of the world's most, uh, yeah. you know, like regaled, celebrated actors. So this was a point in Hollywood where it was more common for that to happen, like, You'd be celebrated in your own country, but if you wanted a paycheck, you could go, you know, like even in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where DiCaprio goes to Italy to make yes. some schlock for a few years. Like mm -hmm. that was more common in those days. It wasn't yes. as much of an international film business. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for Guinness, this was like, oh, I'll go to America and make this schlocky genre like, thing. And then I'll come back and we'll do, you know, Lear. All right. Yeah. Let's get right into it. All right, so a little recap. You got our, our two storylines converging. Riva is uh, horribly wounded after being, we think, once again stabbed with a lightsaber, but too angry to die, as one review uh, put it. Mm -hmm. Arrives on Tatooine to try to find Luke. Vader, meanwhile, is chasing Obi-Wan in the path, and Kenobi, uh, Obi-Wan leaves the ship so that the path can escape, and Vader will chase him. And then they land on this sort of like nearby planet, which to me was reminiscent of the little canyon that Luke walks through to sort of explore his dark side. Right. Yeah. Questions. So on, on, on Dagobah. I, on Dagobah. Yeah. Like I thought it had a similar look to that sort of Dagobah dark forest that Luke walks through. But anyway, they have uh, a super cool lightsaber fight. Obi-Wan regains all of his Jedi powers through the course of it. There's, of course, that, you know, in the awesome TV arc thing, a moment when everyone seems beaten and then the good guys fight back. Um, yeah. And then and then you see, actually, which is kind of lovely, Owen and Baru, like, as Baru in particular, just be like a badass. Like, we're going to fight for this kid and we're going to, you know, get mm -hmm. our guns out. And so they have a fight. She almost kills Luke. Reva almost kills Luke with the lightsaber when he's knocked unconscious. And doesn't rediscovers her own good side of the force. And everything is just wrapped up in a delightful, tidy, yeah. lovely little bow. And now we're ready for New Hope. All right, listen, great startup outcomes are almost always coming from, you guessed it, great developers. But here's the problem. Hiring full-time engineers is expensive and time-consuming. We all know this. So you need to check out Fire's Dev. They provide Silicon Valley level engineering talent on demand. And we're not talking about a single developer, but a team of highly qualified engineers. Byray's Dev is focused on later stage startups and larger companies. And they handle all the annoying stuff like payroll and benefits. They can have engineering ready for you in under three days. Their devs speak fluent English and they're in the same time zone as you. And these devs are not just good, they're great. Byray's Dev screens and vets over 1.3 million applicants every year, and they only pick the top 1% to work with. That's why they have a 91 NPS score and they have over 460 active clients, including several Fortune 500 companies. So I want you to go to byres.dev slash twist. Now listen, I got to spell this for you. B-A-I-R-E-S dot D-E-V slash twist to book an intro call and get 10 thousand dollars off when you sign your first contract that's right ten thousand dollars off
uh, lawn favorite scene in this episode. I think I can guess. Oh wow! I there mean, are two the, really, there are two yeah, really poignant I, ones. I mean, the I love the the lightsaber fight is great. You you actually predicted the helmet uh, yes. forehead scalp slash moment where he breaks open the helmet, which is that recalls a moment from I believe it's a Star Wars Rebels where Ahsoka. Yes. Does the same thing. Darth helmets, uh, Darth helmet, Darth uh, Vader's helmet open, and we get like a little strip of Anakin's face. I love the way they did that in this. How we would go back from Hayden Christensen's voice to James Earl Jones's voice box, and it was really that super cool. Both of them in one body kind of moment. I thought that That was that was really well done and cool. And then it was also it was really delightful to see uh, Qui Gon show up again at the end. well, Liam Neeson for your with- generation, <clears throat> especially you're a little younger than me. I'm a, I mean, I was already I'm sure for, for the prequel kids. It's very cool. I was already in college when Phantom Menace came out. Oh. So it's 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 a, it's just nice how it ties it all together yes. uh, with the old with the old show. I, I really I feel like in some way this and Mandalorian. I like both shows very much, but they're almost like opposite value propositions. Mandalorian is it's this action show. It's episodic. It's like we're going to open up this whole new little corner of the Star Wars world and just just do a fun little adventure in it. And then this was really like the fun of this show was tying all these threads together and making it feel like we're really bridging the gap between the prequels and the original trilogy is the main point, Molly. This is episode three point five. Exactly. Yeah, they created episode three point five because a lot happens between uh, Anakin being defeated on Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith and uh, Obi Wan, um, you know, lowering his lightsaber to be turned, essentially opting in to becoming a Force ghost. You're n- nobody understands what happens in that scene. It's like, oh my god, he just disappeared. He's a ghost. When Darth Vader strikes down old man Obi Wan. But now you understand why Obi-Wan did that. He had defeated Darth Vader on Mustafar mm-hmm. and on this new planet. He couldn't kill him both times. He had so much love for him, he could not kill Anakin. Mm. He walked away both times from absolutely trouncing him. In one, he cut off three of his legs. In this yeah. one, he sliced his, his skull in half and his back. He got a shot in his back and could have killed him both times. He couldn't kill his friend. And his friend was so filled with rage in the final instance in A New Hope, he lowers the lightsaber and says, I'm, I'm not going to even try to kill you. You can kill me. I, I'm gone anyway. I'm moving on and we're going to have yeah. a bigger purpose here. Yeah. And I guess that's what he learns from Qui-Gon when he goes to the desert is there's a bigger purpose here. You can move on. Uh, and there's something about Jedi moving on to this, you know, force ghost. Well, we sort of saying, see yeah. it's a similar beat with Luke at the end of Last Jedi where, mm. you know, some people read it as the 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 amount of concentration he required to project himself to crate from mm-hmm. uh, where he was meditating on uh, Octo, I believe is the name yeah, of that planet. Uh, so you could read that as, well, it's the energy he had to expend. That's what killed him. Or, yeah. but he does just sort of, he just disappears. He just he becomes just, like, one with the force. Yeah. The, the, this um, is, go ahead, Molly. The, the nodies are having a debate that I also wondered about, which is this question of why Reva would because it's not clear in episode five whether she realizes that Luke is Vader's son. Oh no, she knows it. it so she knows it, and I she think he goes, says something about the kids. He said, "I think I because I rewatched that scene." He says in the recap, "His kids. We have to go check on his kids." So she, that's when she, with that little device, 
realize it's it's Vader's right. kids. Right. And then she figures and so out. Then Luke she and goes Leia to are. answer the question of what people are asking, which is then why would she go kill Luke? It's to get revenge on Vader. Yes. And for I think the idea having killed slaughtered all the younglings. And yes. and I see people are commenting, but Vader doesn't know about Luke. It's like, well, she wants she would tell it like that. We we've already established that Reva loves to dangle information, lord information over people. That would be her revenge. She would go tell Darth Vader, you yes. had a son and or, I killed him. Or even better. I mean, she's mm-hmm. walking back with what you think might be a dead Luke Skywalker, which right. obviously doesn't make any sense unless they were going alternate universe with this episode. Right? Yeah, we, we right. kind of know. I think by so that we know he's not dead, out. but yeah. he looks pretty dead. I mean, imagine by that she point, brings, I think we figured it out. Imagine she brings young Luke Skywalker's 10 year old body to Darth right. Vader. Exactly. Here's your son. Yeah, I killed I think, him just like you killed my friends. I mean, just it's like she dark. delighted in being it's the dark. one who gets to tell Obi Wan Anakin is still alive and he's yes. Darth Vader. She would right. that would be part of her delicious revenge would be telling him about. I have stuff. to say, like both of these uh, lightsaber battles now are they're so amazing because the lightsaber battle that occurred in Revenge of the Sith was a great lightsaber battle. You know, on Mustafar, you thought like, hey, sure. this is peak Jedi, and now you see something different. It's that was peak Jedi fighting each other, but now you have peak Sith Lord and peak, you know, Jedi fighting each other and, you know, all this fabric between them. Um, so I thought that was like choreographed amazingly. Reva's character arc, amazing. Turns out to be amazing, to be a good, I thought it was a, a satisfying character arc because you have to have something else in there, I guess. It can't yeah, it's just heartbreaking all be. and kind of, you know, yeah. yeah. I thought a better ending would have been for Obi-Wan after she goes to see Luke, I'm sorry, Leia, to get back in the ship and Reva's in the ship. I thought that was going to happen for sure. I was and like then waiting for it. Like, yeah, He delivers her to complete her Jedi training. Yes. To Dagobah. That would have been, a, for me, uh, the uh, most satisfying. That would have been. And goes he ha- goes to see Yoda and Yoda says, too old, too old to complete the training. <laughs> she is. <laughs> or he then trains her and it's just I, her sitting there. What do you think? You like I was my, hoping for that. I was really hoping for that. You like that? I think, I think they're only not putting that bow on it because they're, it's probably still being decided what they're doing with her or they're going to mm. pick. Like, I, I don't think she's gone for, for good. I, her I, becoming I would, a Jedi would be next level. Completing her Jedi really training so, would be incredible. I don't, I don't think a lot of these dangling threads that we've been left with are going to just be left dangling for, for okay. too long. I think we're obviously seeing you know, Quinlan, the, oh, Quinlan was here. Like all of these little things that we've set up, those, who are those dead Jedi in Amber that are being preserved? Why mm-hmm. we never got an answer there. All those things are being set up for a future show, a future yes. movie. They're going to pick all these threads. I mean, so I will Reva, say, I also thought, I thought that that was going to happen, that Reva was going to be in the ship. And I was like, you should take her and train her and whatever. And also I was like, you should do that for safety purposes because she now knows that Luke is here. Like I was like, that I watched enough action movies that I had a moment of wondering, like, is Obi-Wan just going to heartbreakingly like, now have to kill her because she knows this big yeah. secret? You know, it's not, <laughs> not the way of the Jedi. To me, it would have been better security <laughs> to bring her but to be trained as a Jedi. Jedi. Not yeah, the yeah the but Jedi. then make sure she's like, okay, and taken care of instead I, of just I, like, okay, I, peace I, out. I see you have a big owie. I think they let fine. that. I think they let that go for another time like they can do a little flashback scene which is like one of the things star wars is good at is not filling in all the gaps and let your imagination run wild like what were the clone wars like you know oh you fought with my father in the clone wars we we waited 20 years to find out what the clone wars were like right um so there was a another great scene so number one scene for me was the speech and the discussion i'll pull up the copy of it in a second between anakin and luke because he says yeah i I killed vader (laughs) 
it's not your fault. I, I killed, I'm sorry, I killed Anakin. Yeah. yeah. And you're absolutely correct. The modulation of the voice, incredible scene taken directly from Rebels when Ashoka battles Darth Vader um, and cracks his skull open. So they, they, and then also the, as we talked about in the penultimate episode, when he pulls down the ship, there's a video game scene where he pulls down a Star Destroyer. Um, but I have to say, I got incredibly emotional. I don't want to uh, admit this, but I got a very emotional. I'm not going to say I cried like Molly does. <laughs> but when he says, I'm sorry, Anakin, for everything. And then he says, I am not your failure, Obi-Wan. You didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did. That scene was incredibly moving to me. And I just thought, my God, they've written dialogue that is actually not terrible for Star Wars now. Like this yeah. actual dialogue to me, Lon, I don't know if you noticed it, but they're really working on the dialogue to, you know, it's quippy, like, you know, the original Star Wars series had some good quips in it, but they're actually yeah. making more poignant dialogue. This has they, to be something they're consciously doing, right? They're, uh, I don't know if you noticed, some of these episodes had the name Stuart Beatty uh, in the credit, uh -huh. like story by or written by. He's a, like a Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote Collateral. He wrote mm -hmm. some of the Pirates of the, the Caribbean films. He was the one who had originally written the original version of this, which was the movie. Mm. So this was originally going to be a movie. Then yes. they were like, no, forget that. We're going to make a six episode show out of it. That guy, Hossein Amini, who you see in the credits, he was the guy who turned it into a six episode show. And then from there, they rewrote it to make it less like the Mandalorian. And that's the version that the, the final yes. people who made this show worked on. Every time you see Stuart Beatty, it means there's elements in that episode that were from the original movie. And God. I think this scene was the climax of the original movie. And yes. it probably got, it was probably the thing that got carried through this entire production. Like, okay, we know we want to do this big scene with Anakin and Obi-Wan facing off. And I, I, I feel like that dialogue was probably has been Perfectly. set for a really long time because it mm -hmm. was really good. And I think the whole show maybe formed itself around that scene. Cause it that's was what that, that it was, was like the, the payoff moment. Yeah. It was like the goodwill hunting. It's not it also, again, it, it, yeah. it fixes, and I'm not saying this needed to be fixed, but it, it fixes a moment in the original movie. Yes. Where, did you kill my father? Where Obi-Wan, it, it, you, there's a way to watch it where it feels almost like he's lying to Luke. He says, your yeah, father was, was killed by Darth Vader and it's very misleading, if not an outright mistruth. But now it makes more sense because that's what Anakin says to him this specifically. says it himself. He says, I, I killed Anakin, not Darth you know, Vader killed yeah, Anakin. Because yeah, yeah. that's what happens in A New Hope when he first meets him. Also, another little nitpicky thing, when Luke Skywalker doesn't know what a lightsaber is, and when he's given the lightsaber by Obi-Wan in A New Hope, he's, you know, like, it's a fantastical <laughs> device. <laughs> he looks directly down the scope of it, yeah. Well, he's, yeah, he's trying to figure out what it is, and they're like, mm -hmm. well, wait a second, Luke Skywalker's never seen a lightsaber, so Reva's coming in having a lightsaber battle. Mm -hmm. They specifically, when he's leaving that bedroom to go run in the desert away from Reva, yeah. he's halfway out the window when she walks in. Right. He never right. sees yeah, the he lightsaber. Never sees it. Yep, the only I time that she too. used I was like, the they did fort. that quite carefully, that he, and then he's knocked out. He's yes. running above her. She uses the force to loosen the rocks underneath yes. him as he's running. But he would you wouldn't necessarily see that if you were running no. and the right. rocks fell. You might just assume. No, he, assumed he, tripped. he, he right. does not know what the force so is. He they, doesn't know what a yeah, lightsaber is. They, they, they shot around him. it. They it, was clever. it was clever and it was it was 
specific enough to be noticeable. You were like, okay, he would, and if he saw anything, it would be like a thing with a hood, like a Tuscan Raider, which is what they told him was happening. Yeah. Oh, that the good, yeah, that's a good observation. We're on that, the move. Yeah, that's also uh, for eagle-eyed fans. The toy that Obi Wan brings him, the T sixteen Skyhopper yes. mini model, mm-hmm. that's in Luke's bedroom in A New Hope. That yes. toy. So they're doing that purposefully to like well, this is a bit of the set. Also, this is how he got that bit of the set. When he cracks his lightsaber in through the broken helmet. I think this is like for me, this is as powerful of a scene as Revenge of the Sith, when he says, You are the chosen one. Mm-hmm. And when Darth Vader says, You've already saved me to Luke Skywalker. Like these are the three scenes. And he says, Anakin, and the disordered Anakin's gone. I am what remains. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Anakin, for all of it. And then he, you know, says, I'm not your failure. Mm-hmm. And then he says, my friend is truly dead. Goodbye, Darth. Yeah. I mean, just unbelievable. Yeah, the, the dark um, thing is, yeah. Th- there's a second scene I thought was incredibly powerful too that also got me a little bit emotional if I'm, if I'm being honest. Uh, it's, uh, and I think this is my second favorite scene from the episode, which is um, Obi-Wan comes back to say goodbye and bring um, the toy. Um, right. What's Lola. It? Lola, bring Lola, Lola back. Lola the yeah. droid, yeah. And, you know, Princess Leia, who is clearly wise beyond her years and has this force, as we've discussed, um, superpower that is more around communication and influence and whatever. Princess Leia Organa, you are wise, discerning, kind-hearted. These are the qualities that came from your mother, but you're also passionate and fearless, forthright. These are the gifts from your father. Both are exceptional, were exceptional people who bore an exceptional daughter. I mean, oh, the, the, the <laughs> fact that he speaks so kindly about Anakin yeah. and preserves Anakin's forthrightness and fearless and passion, he, he still sees so much good in Anakin, which now makes so much sense for Obi-Wan. Now I start to think about this, when I think about Star Wars now, what this has done for me is, oh, it's the story of the Skywalker family. That's what Lucas always says. To me, it's the story of Obi-Wan. It really is like he him having to deal with this situation to me is an equally the lens through which he had to witness this him as the witness is to me like a very important part yeah. of Star Wars. I don't the, know how you feel about it, Lon. Uh, the, theme of, the theme of separating Anakin and and Vader and like coming to that understanding runs through the whole episode. And it's 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 really handled well. I mean, I think you could read that as why he can now see Qui-Gon like. Qui-Gon right. was the one who was like, Anakin's the chosen one. We have to train the boy. He, he's, he's the future. He's going to bring balance. And you could sense that Obi-Wan maybe has been holding on to a little anger about that for all this time. Like, well, you were wrong, old man. He ended up destroying hmm. everything. And now that he's made his peace with Anakin is truly gone. And, you know, Anakin's been replaced by this other guy. Now he's ready to make his peace with Qui-Gon Jinn and, and re- re-encounter his old master i thought that was like it a did nice... seem like he was ready to move on like or he was able yeah, to move on Qui-Gon and, and says the... it specifically like i've been here the whole time it was you you're now ready to to see me mm-hmm. what a year for liam neeson also popped up in atlanta he's showing up in all the big he's shows this year. I uh, he, oh there was a great episode of atlanta where liam neeson does a surprise cameo yeah, I mean, I knew the Liam Nelson thing. They would just hold to the end. I thought when he was buried in rubble, they would do it. Um, yeah, they, they teased it throughout. Listen, dealing with your personal health and wellness can be daunting. You're probably being bombarded by ads and you might have no idea where to start. That's why Dorn created a care system that's personalized, preventative, and holistic while still being science-backed. And if you're a high-performing founder or operator, 
you need to make sure you take care of your health. And that's where Thorne can help. Thorne offers at-home tests, which identify where you need the most care, like a gut test that analyzes your gut microbiome and a stress test that measures your stress hormone fluctuations. Very important to manage that stress. These tests help eliminate the guesswork for good health by providing personalized steps for how to eat, how to exercise, and what supplements you should take. Just reminded me, I got to take care of that. Then they have a range of multivitamins and supplements you can subscribe to. And Thorne is totally vertically integrated, so you're not dealing with anyone in the middle. Again, this is personalized health and wellness. To get started and take 10% off your first order, head to thorne.com slash you slash twist. That's T-H-O-R-N-E dot com slash U slash T-W-I-S-T to save that 10% and let them know you came from This Week in Startups. All right, here, Molly, any other observations on the episode or things you loved or hated or? I mean, I thought it was lovely. I thought it was like the perfect Mm. wrap up to this little special movie. And I'm with the, I'm actually on the side of the people who say I don't, even though it was lovely and you would want to see more, I don't think we need a season two. I thought that was just like a perfect arc to connect the series and go into New Hope and they should leave us wanting more. Yeah, I mean, I I would be fine. I think there's more. If you wanted to bring Obi-Wan back in some way, I think you could come up with... There's obviously ways to tie him in with the Mandalore story that they're also telling. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, there I don't is think, a theory. This storyline needs to continue with Obi-Wan no, no. and young Leia and his, you no. know, what's going on in Tatooine. I feel like we, we've seen that now and I'm ready for other stuff in this pre-rebellion early rebellion world i would like yes uh uh, one other note the this question of how did reva survive the second time she got hit with the lightsaber they haven't actually done but we'll assume a back to tank or something it's the first time um they're in the mandalorian they showed grogu at the jedi temple as a youngling uh being like uh you know saved and being like reva was in the in the mandalorian series I believe. So there is Correct. a theory that he force healed Reva <laughs> as they were leaving the Jedi temple. Cause he can force heal yeah. and wow. saved her that. Cause they're always like, how did she get saved? I could see Grogu coming out and there are injured Padawan or injured younglings yeah. everywhere. And he just puts his hands on her. Also, like he did with to be fair, people. I sort of always, assume, this is really dark, but I was like, well, it probably cauterizes the wound. So if it's just a wound and it's not fatal, when you're pretty cauterized, so you're not bleeding to death. Right. I I think that we're, yeah, I mean, what we're seeing now is, I feel like Lucasfilm's overall strategy is starting to become clear. It's just clear out these time periods that you can then start to like seed and fertilize Mm -hmm. with stories. And then you can keep building on them over time. But like, they're just, they're just setting all of this foundation for further storytelling. And all of this, I think, is depth. All these characters are now I, I have a theory, in play I, in this world to cross over and other shows and make connections between all of them. My theory is completely different. I think that this is all a setup to do the entire Clone Wars as a 100-episode series. I mean, yeah. it may be a 100. I think it could literally be like a 10-year series because there's so much that occurs. You have Anakin as a child, you have Anakin as an adult, and you just have the Senate and you have the Clone Wars, which were incredible. So and that could flash forward and even flash backwards. So this concept of just flashing back and forward like they did in the series, they didn't do it too much. But they did a bunch of flashbacks right to the younglings and the Jedi Academy. They could basically take the Clone Wars animated series. It's a blueprint 
That's probably what Ewan McGregor and that's why Hayden and Ewan did this. They need to secure the bag. They need the bag. <laughs> Neither of these individuals are in a franchise. Am I correct? Nobody's uh, in Marvel. Nobody's got some no, huge payday. I mean, like they're 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 doing fine. But yeah, like Hay Hayden Christensen could definitely use a big franchise role for That's sure. True. He's That's true. He's and not. He's, he's not, not he, needs in a, he needs a hyaluronic acid he's and not, maybe like a collagen. Yeah, he's not working as much. Ewan is fine. But, but like, Ewan's fine. But no, Ewan's not he had I'm a not worried about Ewan. Has he had a franchise? No, but I'm, I feel okay. okay, like that's, but that's by, it's by choice. That's, okay. he could, well, you he know could what? Get, at some point you have to make the right choice, which is to he, secure he could, the bag. He could at be all in costs. a Marvel if he wanted to be, or mm. he could do a DC if could he, he wanted I don't know. To. Uh, I it hasn't so. happened. So he needs to secure the bag. He's Obi-Wan. I know that, but he, he loves this role. He's so I think they did I mean, this <laughs> with the understanding if this went well and the audience reacted to it, that Kathleen Kennedy would give them the bag to do some really I, juicy project. I mean, my only, my only caveat is, I don't know if they would, I think Clone Wars itself is, it's very episodic. It's very yes. like, here's what's happening on this world. Here's what's happening on this world. Here's what's going on with Mandalore. Here's what's going yeah. on with these guys. And they are already doing like the Bad Batch have their own show. And, yes. you know, Ahsoka's getting her own show. I don't know almost, I don't know, I almost don't know if what the fans want is let's recreate these moments you already the know. The fans so didn't much see as, Clone Wars. Spin. Nobody's seen it though. At this point, I think a lot of people think anymore. Nobody watches animation. I think it's let's spin all of this stuff okay, off. We'll see. Let's give, we'll see who's like, right. Cad Bane showing up in Mandalorian is the blueprint to me. It's like right. how many of these characters can we ping off and have them show up over here or over there? Bring mm. that, and it's just like what we see in Marvel, where it's like, oh, let's bring Doctor Strange and Scarlet Witch together and give them a team up movie, and let's do mm. we'll give Hulk a all cousin right. who gets her own show, and I think it's going to be that thing okay. where you could just keep expanding out forever hmm. that'd be my guess molly any guesses here no i'm buying like I, I, like based on in, this you're in I, deep man you're I in saw deep. a guy pitch this week but Imagine i do think hold on it's my turn but yeah. i do think <laughs> that it is clear that our future will only ever be made up of star wars and marvel so yeah. your yes. prediction <laughs> of a hundred episode live action clone wars makes sense from that perspective yeah. deeply yes, yes. all right well, yeah. also we'll, we'll i'm loving out. bitchy grand inquisitor and i want to see more of him <laughs> Well, he he's is so in Rebels, snotty. So, yeah. Like his face when he has to sort of be quiet and not chase after the path when he's just like, <sighs> he's like, bad decision again, Darth. Right? Like <laughs> he's just I a little talk back to Darth it makes because me he'll crush me. Makes me laugh. That was actually a noticeable. The Inquisitor is like a very regal character in Rebels where he's just like, oh, we lost another ship. I guess I'll have to murder these people. You know, he's just like a really <laughs> sadistic, evil. <laughs> But also with like a great accent kind of character. It's Jason Isaacs in uh, the TV show. I think. Is it? Yeah, I believe it um, is. It's hmm. pretty, pretty uh, great. Okay, it's 2022 and digital ads are not what they used to be. Costs are increasing. Attribution is less effective. We heard about that on the show. And targeting is more difficult. All of these things are headwinds against marketing spend being effective. This means marketers need to diversify their media mix, and you can do this with Out of Home, O-O-H, Out of Home Advertising. Now, you're probably thinking, my God, how do I get on giant billboards and these beautiful painted murals? It's all so confusing. Well, AdQuick solves that problem. These kind of ads offer great reach, higher brand recall, and they have the lowest CPMs, cost per thousands, of any traditional ad type, but buying Out of Home is super clunky. You got to get on the phone, the data's a mess, but now there's AdQuick. 
AdQuick.com makes it easy to plan, buy, and measure every kind of outdoor advertising like those giant billboards and the painted murals that everybody loves. Well, with AdQuick, you get robust data sets, fast execution, and accurate measurement across every KPI that's important to you. And AdQuick is a global player in the ad space. So here's a great offer, $1,000 off your first ad campaign at adquick.com slash twist. And mention twist to get $1,000 off your first campaign. I am thinking about buying stonks now with the market correction. And I've been Mm. looking at Disney. I've always wanted to just start building a position in Disney. And this show, I don't like to give stock advice, but I just think if you can execute on this level so consistently, I just... I think that these characters, they're going to redo, I believe, this is another prediction from Jacob, <laughs> prediction one, and I'm going to play my prediction on this series in a moment. I'm going to take my little mini victory lap here. We need to always, this is the job of the producers. You're judged based on your ability to find my previous predictions that are correct <laughs> and feature them. And then any ones that are not correct, go back into the archive and retcon that and just delete them. Uh, no, but uh, I believe they're going to do Clone Wars in some fashion. Then I believe, and I watched a video on the what Lucas's actual plans were for the next three, and he gave them the stories for the sequels. Yes. They didn't use them. The leaking no. now has that this what happened in the sequels, which makes so much sense when you see Obi-Wan and how they treated Leia and made her the featured character. The person who was going to bring balance to the force was not Luke. The person who was going to bring balance to the force was Leia. Or by an interpretation, Leia, Luke, then Leia bring balance to the force because they're twins. This makes much more sense. Twins, balance, you get it? Um, so here's what happens. The, uh, the villain was supposedly going to be uh, Darth Maul. And Darth Maul had an apprentice. And then Leia is running the Galactic Senate and trying to get rid of all the pockets of evil. So now it's kind of the reverse. In the Star Wars series, the middle series, four, five, and six, they're trying to get rid of the rebels. She's trying to get rid of the evil empire, remnants of the empire kind of situation, including Darth Maul, who wants to reconstitute it. And then she uses her power to extinguish this and bring the Jedi back. Luke becomes the, you know, runs his Jedi order with uh, Leia becomes a Jedi and they produce a whole new crop of Jedi. And we're back to where we were at the start of the Clone Wars. But it's Princess Leia who is the featured character in that series but of course they didn't go with his story does that drive with what you've read that that would be the theme of that yeah i mean i think i think definitely uh you know leia having like more of a central role earlier on and and those characters being more just generally central to it i think was a was a big uh, you know thing that luke that lucas had i've never read like Duel of the Fates is the other one that they talk about where it was like the Colin Trevorrow version instead of the J.J. Abrams version, Mm. which is out there in the world and you can read, which is a very different direction. But it's still the like the story of those guys, Ray, Kylo Ren, Finn, first story. If you just think about it on a money grab, the amount of money they made from the sequels, Force Awakens, yada, yada, Last Jedi, to get a second swing at bat Mm -hmm. and make them again. And get all that money again, <laughs> just as a capitalist marauding capitalist. Why would you not? And that's what Disney is, which is yeah. So see, all also, of a sudden, not exactly advice, but kind to of get advice, three more and say, listen, this is an all because now that Marvel and DC are like, oh yeah, by the way, you could do what any anything you want in your universe. You just call it like an alternate timeline. 
Yeah. They could just take the alternate timeline thing and that's say. That's not even, mm-hmm. I mean, even Marvel didn't invent, like, Star Trek Generations was just that. Like, you want to do a Picard Kirk team up movie? Okay, there's a time, there's right. a time rip. You could, obviously, my- you could obviously do that with Star Wars. There's a force power that allows you to rewrite the past, there's a portal that they find to an alternate reality. You know, it's Star Whatever. Wars. All right. Here's my uh, prediction from the beginning of the show. I don't know what episode this was. One minute, we'll see you on the other side. I think they haven't explained all the scars on Darth Vader when we take the helmet off in Return of the Jedi. You know how there's a big, deep scar on his head? Yeah. I'm going to make another crazy Look, right right Look yeah. at you. You've just been like waiting for me to get yeah. there. He's like, come on. I was waiting for you to get there. You got there. And he hits him in the head. Here's what I think happens. I think Reva dies during this. I think it becomes like a three or four person battle where uh, Obi-Wan or, or, or Darth Vader kills Reva. I mean, who knows? They, they both hate her. And then somehow Obi-Wan bests Darth Vader. Darth Vader's besting him the whole time. And he cracks his, you know, beautiful helmet, which is perfect at this point, <laughs> and puts that scar on his head that eventually Luke Skywalker sees. And that's how that scar, because that scar is not coming up in the back of the tank. I looked for it. Yeah. He's got that, that it's almost like an indent in his, an in indent his, in his head. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, look at this. Oh. Here it is. Oh, there, there it is. is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there it that's is. it. Yeah. You're right that the, we don't see a pronounced wound on the top of his scalp, which could definitely. Nope. All right. They have folks. There and to be honest, it, you know, if you have seen rebels, you saw possibly, uh, Ashoka did that too. I don't know if they redo that battle because it's so similar. I mean, Who knows? to be f- Fair. He did yeah. crack his helmet open, but there wasn't a wound. And well, we didn't Obi-Wan. see the wound. It was kind of dark, but yeah. I like how it was, it was probably there. It was, I'll give it to you. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, a, it's, hard, it's, a, it's a little hard to see with bits of the helmet sort of, yeah. sort of still there. Yeah. There. Yeah. All right. Listen, Lon, this has been great. We'll finish yeah. up the, uh, we'll finish up the star, the star Trek and right. then we'll we're find another show. Hopefully an entrepreneurial show. We'll go to an entrepreneurial movie. That's the other thing I want to do. I think mm-hmm. there's something, there's a bunch of stuff coming up. We can figure it All out. All right. Everybody follow Lons and go to inside.com slash streaming, uh, honest trailers, yada, yada, but follow him. He's good on Twitter. If you're, if you like a mixture of pop culture and, you know, far left, like no, it's not that far dunking on people. <laughs> it's sort of like the anti-sax. Twitter account. Yeah. I, that's how I see myself as the, anti-sax. it's sort of like the light in the dark, you know, it's, he's kind of, I, the, I think that's a good way to describe it. <laughs> I love <laughs> I love your Twitter. You're great on Twitter. Twitter.com. Thanks, slash Agreed. I appreciate Agreed. that. See you next time. See, See you guys. next time. Bye-bye. All right. In other news, uh, we'll just do a quick transition here. You may have remembered Molly. Uh, I, I had a, once again, stepped in it. Or I couldn't control my, couldn't control my honest opinion. Feeling. About something. You know, it yeah. comes up once in a while where I just get a little too candid. I go full J-Cal. Well, remember I went full J-Cal with the CEO of, um, Jewel, Jewel when I was at a, a party socially and I told him like how do you sleep at night or yada yada well he's not sleeping well at night right now yeah not at all <laughs> <laughs> I was sorry I was just basking in the like I don't know yeah the genius of that trend you're like and now yeah so the FDA is uh banning the sale of jewels in the huh. U.S., other e-cigarettes will uh, flavored e-cigarettes will still be available but apparently Jewel is just, I, I mean, honestly, I think probably has just been too much of a bad actor mm. is what this ultimately comes down to. I mean, it's coming at a moment where like so many other dangers are freely available to American children that it's kind of hilarious, but sure, we don't have Jewel anymore. They're protecting you from looking like a jerk on the street, at least with mm. this one brand. But I, I mean, to the point that you made and the and the the, <laughs> the full J-Cal emotion. Yeah. 
it, you think about what you have to do to get yourself ba- banned. And I think what you have to do is just constantly yeah. ignore every warning sign that you've ever gotten that this could happen and just be a bad actor with respect to marketing your product to kids, to continuing to do so even after you've been told not to do so, you know, to just yeah, it, they, they come for the it, children over so and over. I think Ju- the, the way this went down too was Jules trying to get a path to be, they were looking for some path to make this like legally clear. So they applied to sell these uh back in 2020 um and back then the fda had banned mint and fruit flavored vapes to try to cut down on teen vaping only allowing tobacco and menthol flavored products so just keep it true to the pitch that jewel and others had which is this is a bridge off of to get you to stop smoking you could believe that uh is a true statement like are jewels safer than smoking a pack or two of cigarettes a day i think Without yes. even, yeah, it's, it's, it seems that it would be without knowing the exact chemistry, but that seems plausible since one is burning and one is vaping. It's, it and does seem tar plausible. in it. It's burning tar. Yes. This so, is not yeah. that. This is addictive in right. the nicotine sense. And there are complaints that there could be like chemicals in the actual jewel devices. But yeah, is it safer than cigarettes? Without question. So is it getting kids hooked on nicotine like even earlier? Without question. Of course. Um, so. Uh, I guess you could still get vapes um, like Blue Raz and le- le- Lychee or Lechi. How do you pronounce Lychee Berry? Lechi or Lychee? Lychee. Lychee. Yeah, uh, and Lychee. strawberry banana. Um, I mean, it's, it's like I'm a Joe in the juice when I'm ordering those things. Um, <laughs> according to Time, shout out to uh, the new owner of Time, CEO of Salesforce. Companies mm-hmm. like Puff bar avoided fda regulations by using lab-made nicotine that some in the vaping industry argue the fda can't regulate interesting despite the ban fda said quote if they didn't see clinical information that suggests there is an immediate risk to using jewel products huh despite the ban they're saying this hmm yeah i mean Uh, i think this is i honestly i think this is less about you know it there's also, I think, an order this week about uh, demanding that cigarette makers reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes, oh, really? too. So there mm-hmm. is like this coincides with a bit of a larger federal crackdown. But mm-hmm. I have to be honest, I think this ban is about one company because they haven't banned vaping writ large. And there are these other yeah, companies yeah. that yeah. are making these like kid friendly flavors and all mm-hmm. of that. I think this is really about saying, hey, Jewel, like you're not reformable. Here's the lesson for founders. Uh, be a good actor always be on the side of the consumer you're serving uh and on the side of society you have to be able to tell that story i'll give some examples in a moment and um you know i think begging for forgiveness in certain verticals uh you know as opposed to asking for permission is a mistake and so here's the example you know if you're airbnb and you get a bunch of people who can stay cheaper you know and and go to as i always talk about like you can you can go on a longer vacation or there's more options for people maybe who aren't rich to, to go on vacations because they get a better deal and they couldn't afford the $200 a night hotel, but they get a three bedroom for $200 a night. So instead of a family having three hotel rooms for 600 a night, you get 200 for three bedrooms. That family is going to, uh, and those consumers are going to go to bat for you. Mm-hmm. And then if you are, I don't know, you're, you're trying to make extra money and you got a, you know, ADU in your backyard, you got an extra bedroom and you want to 
stay at your friend's house and rent out your apartment and that's how you pay your rent or your mortgage like okay now you've got another constituent about you who's the constituent molly here that's going to bat for jewel yeah the only constituents you would have would be doctors this is how i would have played it yeah i would have worked with doctors and worked with people who uh had lung cancer and for people who couldn't get off of these and i would have had a plan not to make fruity flag flavors and maximize profitability, but I was a plan to say, listen, here's 100% of our focus. When you come to our website, when you look at our advertising, it's here's all the stories of people who were smoking two packs a day, they moved to the vape, here's what their lungs look like when they move to the vape, here's what their lungs look like now. And we hope that th we have four products they can buy, F five units of nicotine, four units, three units, two units, one unit, a half a unit. Mm -hmm. They can go all the way down this nice curve and here's the plan we give them they work with their doctor and boom yeah then yeah. you would have all those people saying, you know what i was addicted to nicotine and i went from a five to a four to a three i'm currently a two i hope to get down to 0.5 mm -hmm. um, and they would have this high road where they could say look yes of course people are going to steal them and yes we make one or two flavors that you can get that make it more delightful than smoking a cigarette yeah, uh, but yeah, this is not for kids. Um, and, and instead, they went the exact because that when vaping first arrived on the scene, I yeah. knew I had friends who were like, "Well, I'm you know I'm vaping now, and I feel like an idiot, but it's better than smoking, and it's you know it's safer, and you could literally have created a safer but addictive product, right? Like we all tolerate caffeine in our life. <laughs> like caffeine is an addictive substance, sugar is an addictive substance. You could have been like, yes, nicotine on its own is addictive, but it's no worse than any other stimulant and it's safer than smoking. And you could have written that into billions. And instead, they literally Juul specifically followed the actual tobacco, big tobacco playbook of get kids hooked and keep yeah. them as your customer forever. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't well, here's, feel sorry. Here's what all. not to do. I'm going to say don't make ads that look like this. If you're watching youtube.com slash this weekend or shout out to our friends at Spotify for having video in their player and iTunes, Apple podcast, you can search and there's a this weekend startups videos if you want to watch the video. But it looks like a basic an iPad. Uh, they copied the iPod ads. Um, and you just basically have young people, you know, who look like they're going out to Coachella with their yeah. cool vapes and like cool design. And, um, you know, and here's the New York Times story. That kind of puts the nail in their coffin from back in 2020. Uh, Jewel bought ads appearing on Cartoon Network and other youth sites suit claims. So this is a lawsuit. I don't know um, exactly where it wound up. And who knows? This could be a case of just Jewel bought ads on an ad network and those ads wound up on these places. But if you are advertising something, you can pull up the uh, New York Times story if you want just to show the headline there. Um, if you are... I mean, Nickelodeon, Seventeen Magazine, the Cartoon Network, and educational sites for middle school and high school students. Yeah. So this is the question is like, you know, how thoughtful are you being about doing this, you know? Um, and you can see some of the other ads in the New York Times story where they're talking about this is the evolution um, and they're showing like, you know, an old joystick from an Atari 2600 or old brick cellular phone. I mean, I... If you're going to, you know, make a product like this, and you, you're going to break some rules, mm -hmm. you just have to make sure you you talk about storytelling with a lot of our founders, Molly, and you do a little talk on storytelling, like the storytelling here was really bad. <laughs> it's like a smoking gun storytelling. Just and the really, product market fit, right? I mean, they were yeah. like, our product market fit is teenagers, full stop. There's no evidence otherwise. If you have a marketing department, that's making ads directed at kids, you know, and 
you know, everybody who works in government, our parents and older people, or they have grandkids. This is like another pragmatic thing you have to think about as an entrepreneur. Who's going to set the rules for you? If you don't regulate yourself, you will be regulated. That's just basic rules of the road. So either you regulate yourself and you get ahead of it, or, you know, you will be regulated. How did Airbnb regulate themselves, Molly? They put their own insurance in place. So mm-hmm. when people said, well, what happens if somebody's room gets trashed? They said, oh, well, we have this insurance thing here. Oh, what about safety and security? They said, oh, well, we have a rating system. Anybody yeah. can rate anybody. Oh, how do you protect against a new person? Well, we give a warning. This person has never had anybody stay at their place. You know, and they, I think they have verified photos as well. So there were all these things where you said like, well, how do you know if a hotel is safe? Well, in Airbnb, you have, does any hotel let you post reviews? If you're a verified customer on their website, that doesn't exist in the world, but it exists at Airbnb. So Airbnb could actually say, look, we have a higher rating here. Do you, are you allowed to rate New York City or, you know, San Francisco cab drivers? Do you even know who your cab driver was? No. Do you have minute by minute uh, trail of, you know, a San Francisco cab in case something horrible happened, they murdered a, or, or attacked a uh, customer? No. But does Uber and Lyft have minute by minute of that? Yes. Yeah. And do you know the name of your driver? Does the driver know your name? Like, do you rate each other? That rating system gave a lot of high ground to Uber when people were talking about safety and security, as did the minute by minute GPS. So it was trackable. Because this is what would happen. People would take a cab. And nobody would know whatever happened to that person. We don't know what cab they got in. We don't know whose car they got and they got in a cab. We don't we didn't look at the license plate. We don't know the license number. Boom. So let's uh, do a quick. uh, So anyway, congratulations uh, to uh, society and to the people at jewel <laughs> congratulations to society and to the people at jewel my same uh, message to the people at tiktok yeah um you should be ashamed of yourselves you should take a deep look in the mirror there are plenty of ways to make money in this world you chose to sell your souls to be on the wrong side of history and i'm not going to use my previous catchphrase because it's inappropriate um but my catchphrase for these people is now i hope the money was worth it i Good hope the up. money was worth it Every night when you go to bed, if you work at Jewel or TikTok, you're going to hear my voice. When your head hits the pillow, hear my voice. Hope the money was worth it. And then you got to sleep. You're going to be restless when you hear that voice. All right. And next up on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, prescription drugs and how the United States uh, is just getting absolutely ripped off. Molly, tell us a little bit about the interview. Yeah, I mean, this is a great interview with a guy who is doing the opposite, basically. Mm. We get an incredible, it's a, it's AJ Loyacano, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Capital RX, just closed $106 million Series C from B Capital and General Catalyst. And he gives us an incredible mm. history of how drug prices in America got mm. to the point that they're at, which is, you know, costing people and pharmacies billions and lining all kinds of pockets. And the ways in which Capital RX and others are trying to fix that. He's also just like a, he's a copywriting machine. He's like, when you have the perfect market, you never have to innovate. You consolidate and points out that 80% of pharmacy benefit manager market share is controlled by three companies. Mm. And that's what Capital RX is trying to disrupt. It's really interesting. And it's just a very, very cogent and slightly infuriating interview. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And a lot of people have asked us, well, isn't Mark Cuban doing something similar? We'll have the CEO of that company on. Yeah, and we asked him about well. that. And it turns yeah. out they're quite complimentary. They are, they are, okay, can be each other's customers. Can't wait. I'm going to listen right now. Enjoy, everybody. Enjoy.
All right. I am joined by AJ Loyakino, CEO of Capital RX, a pharmacy benefit manager that man- manages and negotiates prescription drug benefits on behalf of large organizations. They just raised a $106 million Series C led by B Capital. And the mission is to, as I understand it, increase transparency in the prescription drug process and also improve patient outcomes, which I think we can all agree sounds great. Thank you for doing this. And welcome to the show, AJ. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. So tell me a little bit about how this works, like sort of high level. How do drugs get paid for? You know, where do pharmacy benefit managers sit? And what is the role there? Yeah. For people who don't understand any of this. So let's take a step back. Let's kind of compare it to something that we all understand. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. A pharmaceutical manufacturer begins to make a pallet of drugs and they spend an afternoon and there's, let's just say, a pallet sitting on a loading dock. And pharmaceutical manufacturers, these could be brand manufacturers like Pfizer or Merck, or these could be generic manufacturers like Teva. And what they do is they sell to the next step in the pharmacy supply chain. So they sell to what are known as wholesalers. These are companies that you may or may not know by names of McKesson, Cardinal, and Amerisource Bergen. And they buy the inventory from the manufacturers. And their role is the kind of last mile of logistics. So their supply chain logistics is to provide medication to hospital systems as well as pharmacies. And they sell to, as I state, pharmacies and hospital systems, and they have a unit price and they sell through the supply chain. And at this point, it makes sense. We could be talking about cans of soda to sneakers at this point, coming from a manufacturer, selling to a retailer, and there's a markup. Mm -hmm. But this is where everything starts to go haywire in the United States is the next step in the supply chain is where we have insurance. So you have this in the form of carriers, as well as what are known as PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. And their job is to administrate a benefit on behalf of a payer. A payer could be anything from a municipality to a school system to an employer. It could be the federal government. And they're administrating this pharmacy benefit. And you would think it would follow the same step. There's a price of a drug, there's some sort of reasonable markup that we see and you get a drug price. Mm-hmm. But what happens in this last step is unfortunately the way our system has matured over the last 25 years is all the drug prices in the United States magically disappear. Mm-hmm. So up to this point, everything mm-hmm. has been, hey, if I make a pill for a dollar, I'll sell it for a dollar five and they'll sell it, sell it to a dollar ten. And then you think, oh, so I should get it for a dollar fifteen, you know, some slight markup in the supply chain, but all the drug prices disappear. And so this is the problem is that there are no drug prices because this last step in the supply chain has really been defined by what's called spread pricing. So the administrators that, you know, these are carriers and PBMs. What they did is they said, rather than charge you a fee to administrate your benefit plan, I'll just take a little bit in the middle. Okay. And and it sounded reasonable, like, oh, okay. But what happened is they realized that they had a right to steal effectively because there was no limit to what you could charge. How would you ever know? 
There's no reference. There's no price point for a consumer other than if you could shop around, it's very difficult. There's over 130,000 what we call NDC 11 drug codes with based upon different package size, uh, different strength. And this is really, really difficult for people to understand relative price. So when you take all the pricing away and you leave someone in that last step in the supply chain, I'm administrating a benefit, I can suddenly create any price. And this is where everything goes sideways. Mm -hmm. And I never understood it because I come from pharmaceutical manufacturing. It's where I started my career off for the first eight years of my career. And then I moved over to the payer side and I thought everything would behave the same way as I described. You make a drug, there's a markup and you sell down the supply chain and everyone has a price. And I would read these contracts with the carriers and the PBMs and I'm like, why are there no drug prices in this agreement? And no one had a good answer for me. Well, and, and, I, I, and to be honest, I still don't totally understand how they ended up abstracting out pricing and yeah. introducing this idea of spread. What did they like? Yeah. Wh- what who would allow that that's not how buying and selling works well that's a great point you know who do you think sits on top of what we call self-insured benefits is really what we call anyone that is uh, either what we call over a thousand lives is a self-insured entity so these are large fortune 500 companies municipalities state workers etc but also it's fully insured business. This is coming under carriers and these are small group plans or individual life plans. And so what people kind of got caught up in was the concept of free. And it, everybody kind of said, I like free, you know, but I, no I one like realized free. what the price was, you know, what was the price of free? Well, Wait, they're telling me it's free, right? It's so free. They got, so then just to further clarify, they got caught up in the idea of free because if you are the recipient, aka an insured person, that drug appears to be free or close to free to you? Yes. So okay. what they did is imagine, let's just say in the old model, an old model, let's just say before 1995, roughly. And before 1995, benefit administrators like PBMs would kind of say, hey, I'll charge you 25 cents per script flat fee to administrate your plan. And that's a reasonable amount of money. But then someone had the bright idea, be it marketing or sales, whatever. And they said, what if we went to the employers and the payers and the feds and we said, it's free. Mm -hmm. There's no more 25 cents per script, but you know, I'm just going to take a little bit in between. Mm. And the country ate up this idea. I mean, the expansion of some of the fastest growing companies in the United States, if you were to literally go back in time and look from 2000 to 2007, some of the fastest growing companies in America are Express Scripts, which is now part of Cigna. It's Caremark, which is now part of CBS. So these companies exploded. Medco, another company, exploded in growth, which was purchased by Express Scripts, which was then in turn purchased by Cigna. In but fact, think the about- two you mentioned, we looked this up, McKesson and Amerisource Bergen are eight and nine on the Fortune 500, respectively. Oh, all of these companies are top 20. So yeah. Cigna, top 20, CVS, top 20, and United Healthcare, top 20. So free is never free. Never Free is never free. <laughs> and then never underestimate what people can try and get away with. So maybe they started out and they said, "Eh, it's 25 cents, we'll take 35. We'll take 50 cents, we'll take a dollar. And suddenly they realized 
nothing could stop them. Because no one's looking. Literally no, not paying attention at all. They're just like, we get it for free at the end. You can't see. And then what they started to do is to structure contracting so no one could see. So the first part of it is retail contracting. So what you do is you say, Mr. or Mrs. Pharmacist, you can never communicate price to the patient at the point of sale. Even if you could sell it at a lower price, I don't want you ever to say anything to my customer. And the retailers signed these agreements because they want access to patients. And they said, wow, these carriers are powerful. Let me sign this. And they lost control of the supply chain early on. I want to say retailers probably lost control of the supply chain in early 2000s. And basically, they signed these agreements. So a patient could walk in and remember, the pharmacist can see, especially if they're the owner of the pharmacist or a store manager, and they have some understanding of acquisition costs. They can get a sense of the buy and the sell side, which is I'm typing in the insurance and the insurance company is telling me to charge for a Torvastatin $65. And there's probably saying I'd be willing to do this for 17 bucks, but I can't say anything. Mm. And so that 25 cents suddenly grew to $5, to $10, to $20. And the optimization, because I do want to make this clear. There's nothing technically illegal about what they're doing. You know, what they're doing is they're publicly traded companies and their fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders and they're trying to maximize value within the model that they've created. Yeah. And, so, and so what's interesting is they suddenly said, hmm, I did this on retail. What else could I make more money on? And then you look at things like mail order. Be like, what if I made it mandatory mail? So, if you have a script that's over 30 days supply, I'm going to say you must go through my mail order. Now, what did they, what did I, about that? Yeah. What, what did I do in this magic trick? It sounds like, oh, well, you know, and, you know, think about it. It's under the guise of, I'm going to do what's right for you. You know, we want patient adherence to be higher. We want to do this. But what they're doing is they're creating the largest pharmacies in the United States. So, what's interesting is the largest pharmacies in America by volume aren't necessarily Walgreens or Rite Aid. It's United Healthcare and Express Scripts through Cigna because they have such huge mail and which includes specialty drugs, high cost biologics. And so, what you're doing is you're forcing utilization to your own pharmacy, which gives you now another way to make money, which is on acquisition cost. Remember, the pharmacy has a markup because they're buying the inventory. But now I can make double spread. I can make spread on my inventory because I am the pharmacy and I can make spread on my customer. Hmm. But it so, doesn't end. Well, you, you keep going with the game. It just gets worse. And there we go. We, well, just put, we went ahead and put up United Health Group's oh, uh, yeah. overall, you know, like historical stock chart from the 90s, it looks like. Yes. And you see that right in this period you're talking to, early 2000s, all of a sudden, everything starts trending great. Yep. Nothing but up. Now, what's interesting, if you were to layer in here on top of this chart, like Merck over the same time frame or, you know, Pfizer. Yeah. And, and what you're going to see is what grows faster is not necessarily the pharmaceutical manufacturer. So, as I said, in the history of pharmacy benefits and not to bore people with this is it's important to remember what's happening is the PBM went from kind of in a not that significant member of a supply chain 
to the all-encompassing and all-powerful mm. controller of the pharmaceutical supply chain. So you start with retail, you add into your power through mail order, you expand through what is called specialty drugs. These are the highest cost medication. And then you look at pharma and you go, well, pharmaceutical manufacturers, brand manufacturers have all the money. I would like their money. Right. And, and so, if you think about the optimization of the traditional PBM model, what's next on the menu is how do I get to pharma's money? And a really interesting thing happened. We call it the birth of what's known as a formulary. And a formulary kind of maybe was born with the right intent, which is I would like to select the appropriate medication. My team has gone through. And we have done a survey and an analysis and collected data from the FDA and other area. And that we have basically stated that we have determined precisely the right medication for you. Now, I want to pause for a second and mm -hmm. think about how implausible this is. I, mm -hmm. I use this example all the time. My sister and I are very close in age. We're genetically similar, but we have very different medication needs as well as we respond very differently to medication. What are the odds that everyone in the country should respond to the same exact formula? Right. It's zero. It's zero. But, Especially but, considering how, how few uh, women are even tested with respect to, oh. you know, like you can get into a whole women's health situation and me and your sister will be in a real rage about it. Oh, exactly. And yeah. so, you know, I think we would all agree precision medicine is a much better way to go and we'll eventually steer towards there. But what I'm trying to ground us in is all the ways that you could take advantage of this system to become a control. So what the PBM industry did is they created a formulary and it started out like, hey, I have a formulary and um, to be on my formulary, um, you provide me rebate dollars. And so what you're creating is kind of a pay to play economic scenario, because what if someone says, well, I don't really want to pay. Oh, well, then you're not on my formulary. Now. Mm -hmm. When the PBMs were a bit more fragmented, that didn't mean as much. Someone would be like, all right, well, you've got like 8% market share. They've got 15% market share. Not that big of a deal. But I always like to point out, out of every industry in the United States, the pharmaceutical industry is the greatest gift anyone could ever receive economically. It's an inelastic demand curve. It does not matter what happens with the stock market or interest rates. Drug utilization has held rock steady for 30 years. No other industry could make this claim. In wow. addition, drug prices for brand and specialty only appear to miraculously go up. And then you have what we call the compounding effect of proliferation of specialty. The average cost of drugs is going up due to the introduction of high cost therapies. And so I'm not here to debate what's right or wrong about our patent system or the price of drugs, what I am trying to have everybody understand for a second is when you have the perfect market, you never have to innovate. I mean, think about the advances we've made in things like construction to real estate to even the finance, e-commerce. There's always been ebbs and flows and you have to have the reset button, become more efficient, become more competitive. But what if you're in an industry you never have to be competitive? In fact, yeah. it rewards you for being slothful. And the more focused you are on profit, the better. So you don't innovate, you consolidate. So simultaneously, if we're looking at the history of the PBM industry, what's going on is, well, the PBM industry is eating itself. 
and you're seeing hyper consolidation. And they're literally from 2000 up until last month, you know, there have been 30 plus mergers and acquisitions that have created jumbo entities. So you have literally three entities. You have Cigna Express Scripts, you have United, which owns Optum, you have CVS, which owns the carcass of Caremark, which they took over. And what this is, is you have three entities, depending upon how you do the math, like utilization or GPO economics controls anywhere from 75 to 90% of the purchasing power in the country. So this is important because if we go back to my formulary example, in early 2000s, pharma could kind of push back a little bit and be like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to pay your fee. Well, now I knock on your door and I say, I control 30% of the patient utilization in the country. And if you don't pay me to be on my formulary, you're probably going to be fired. Yeah. Yeah. There's no pushback. Nice little pharma business you got here. Well, and this is interesting, is roughly around, by my estimate, 2010, pharma had basically ceded control of the supply chain. That for decades, pharma had basically controlled the US supply chain. And then by 2010, the liberation had happened and the PBMs had finally basically taken control. And what this meant is there was nothing to stop them from making more and more egregious asks. And people would often say, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And in this equation, I want everybody to think, People say, well, drug inflation is running rampant. Well, if someone's knocking on your door, PBMs every year asking for more money in the form of rebates and manufacturer incentives, how do I pay for it? So you come to me each year and you say, let's say I'm a manufacturer and you're the PBM Molly and you knock on my door every year. It's your job to say, I need 10% more. Yep. Well, I could take 10% less out of my earnings, or I could raise my price mm-hmm. 10%. So, a lot of arguments are circular in the sense that pharma will oftentimes point a blameful finger at the PBM industry, the PBM industry will point a blameful finger at pharma. But I want everyone to understand the history here because what you have is PBMs that are truly in control of the US supply chain. They're in control of everyone, from the mm-hmm. manufacturer to the wholesaler to the pharmacies to the hospitals. So just make no mistake, they're in charge. The second thing is we have a system that's based upon price opacity and price encumbrance. Price opacity, as I mentioned, is nobody can see and understand the buy and sell side, the true and buy sell side of the economics of a prescription. And the other part is this price encumbrance. You have the ability to change the price at your sole discretion under a traditional PBM model to be anything you'd like. Hmm. That is extraordinarily powerful and it equates to very big earnings. And so, you know, I want everyone to understand this is how we got here. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be a surprise. It took roughly 25, 30 years and there were different points. But what it left us with is a scenario where literally you can charge anything. So, the way I want people to think about this is I often say is imagine the US drug system is a casino and we deal in probability and odds. And if I'm the casino, if we look at the US drug pricing system, our cash marketplace in the United States is about 6%. These are the people that either aren't covered by insurance or are, and they kind of hunt for a better price. 
But what does that mean? That means 94% of the time, a patient, when they go to a pharmacy, will accept any price I put in front of them. Mm -hmm. And if you own the casino as the PBM, those are great odds. Right. And and that is so important. I mean, it's funny that you describe it as a casino, because to be honest, it sounds a lot, um, to be fair, I'm rewatching The Sopranos with my son, but it sounds a lot more like a mob shakedown. That may be started as an attempt at efficiency, right? Like we don't want to ascribe values to what people were doing. Everybody was trying to make more money and things we've seen things spiral out of control. So I guess let's fast forward to impact and then Mm -hmm. talk about solutions. What are the, I, I mean, I think we sort of understand what the impacts are of drug price inflation, but give us the kind of big picture of what the system has led to. Well, I think it's led to a breaking point. I, I think you're seeing the FTC announce its investigation of the PBM industry, which is mm-hmm. the first time in my recollection that they've done this. And I have I th- to be honest, like I had never heard of this. I mean, mm-hmm. none of this is stuff that I think people know or understand. No. And, you know, it's hiding in plain sight. It's at your local pharmacy and it happens millions of times every day, people filling prescriptions, but they don't understand what cause these economics to become untenable. And I think the impact on the consumer's rate. So back to the spoiling point, you're seeing state legislation lean in. Mm-hmm. You know, the state legislators are saying, wait a second, what's going on with these PBMs? Because the retailers are complaining, they're getting squeezed harder and harder by the PBMs. Hospital systems are complaining. Patients are complaining because you're seeing this price change back to when price is encumbered through spread pricing. Price changes every second of every day for every drug. And and that's a complete lie. Drug pricing in the United States is incredibly stable. Brand drugs Mm -hmm. change about twice a year. You can set a clock to it. It's typically January and July. And generic drugs typically deflate depending upon your purchase schedules, which could be monthly or quarterly depending upon your size and what your routine is. But the point of it is, it certainly isn't changing every hour of every day for every job. That's artificial price encumbrance. And so, the impact again is patients are complaining, but for the first time, I think oversight groups, be it HHS, CMS, Department of Labor recently is announced they're enforcing the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which is a way to kind of measure profitability and reporting by PBMs as well as brokers and consultants that sell these services, which could be helpful. The FTC is leaning in. So, what you're seeing is we hit this boiling point and everyone's complaining about drugs. And I think finally, people are kind of recognizing there's not one person in the supply chain truly responsible for these multiple people, but the outsized kind of role in pharmacy is the PBM. And I think people are starting to understand this. Gotcha. Well, certainly you do. And so it sounds like what you're also describing is a possibly a regulatory, but also an awareness environment that creates room for competition. Enter Capital RX. Correct. So as I mentioned, I you know, started in pharmaceutical manufacturing. I moved over to the audit and procurement side. So this is reviewing contracts for large self-insured payers. These could be carriers, Fortune 500 companies, even government agencies. And what the one thing I realized is none of these people were truly getting what they thought they were getting. And how could you? Again, you have a contract with no drug pricing in it. There are no drug prices. How could I ever kind of figure out what I'm supposed to get? Because it's so complex. 
you know, we have a very complex classification system of what's the definition of a brand, a generic, a single source, a multi-source, limited supply, DAW handling. And this is done almost to confuse people because everything in the United States has a list price called an NDC 11. And it would be very simple. It just take the NDC 11 and put a price next to it the same way we price popsicles to lampshades. And so what I saw over, I often say I was writing a 13-year thesis on where did the drug pricing go. And I finally got to the point and I said, I'm never going to change the way drugs are priced or patients are serviced by auditing the books or helping with a procurement workflow. Right. So, I think what we wanted to be able to do was, why don't we take a step back and get to the real problem here, which is the person that administrates the benefit is all the control. As I just said, the PBM is in charge of the supply chain. Well, why don't we create a model that we want this to make sense? Let's create a transparent pricing model. Let's mm-hmm. create a public ledger of pricing. Let's not push around the pharmacist. Let's pass through 100% of the value, but let's do it and be super competitive. You know, And this is where we started to develop the technology at my organization to compete with the big three. So let me pause. And I know you probably have a host of questions, but I had to get a lot of this out because it's important to ground everybody to just how we got here. Yeah. As you may have seen it go by in our uh, live chat, people were saying, I feel like 99% of Americans could benefit from knowing this information because nobody totally understands how pricing got this way. It's almost everybody's, you know, you blame big pharma and it turns out that's a whole ecosystem that is working together and you know, making trillions. What, how does it work? Like, how are you doing things differently? How are you enabling that transparency? And if you could give us a real world example of sort of like what that might mean for, you know, my mom and insulin prices. Sure. So the first thing that we wanted to do was you have to kind of have the discipline. You have to have the discipline to what I call to never take the bad money. The Mm -hmm. bad money is spread pricing on drugs. Because the moment you make money on a marked up prescription, one, I don't think it's right. Because if you think about it, you can't mark up a medical procedure in the United States. I don't know how the heck we got to marking up drugs. But I always said you have to start with the discipline to never take the bad money. So you can't take spread on rebates. You can't take spread on mail or specialty, et cetera. So we decided to just charge a flat administrative fee. So this could be per member per month, flat administrative fee. Or it could be a flat per script fee. We let our clients choose. It really doesn't matter. But what we're trying to say is we're performing a very valuable function. When you administrate a plan, you're keeping track of who's eligible. You're setting up the plan design. You're doing the clinical review, the clinical edits, drug utilization, drug to drug interaction. You're reimbursing the network on behalf of the payers. You're billing them, et cetera. You're doing hundreds of what I would say administrative tasks to maintain a benefit. The key is to just always remember that's what your job is, not to be the drug czar of marking up drug prices. Mm-hmm. And so, what we wanted to do is to kind of create what we call our clearinghouse model. And this is this concept of a public ledger. I, I Our office is located in New York City. I say all the time, I walk by the most famous clearinghouse in the world, which is the New York Stock Exchange. And it lets the buy and sell side freely communicate on pricing. 
Molly, you would like to buy $100 worth of IBM. I would like to sell you $100 of IBM. We are communicating freely on price. This does not exist in prescription benefits. And so we wanted to do this. And to do it, we also wanted to never be in a position where we manipulate or set price. So we chose for our pricing benchmark, we use NADAC, National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. You're like, what is this NADAC thing? It comes from the federal government. The federal government uses it in Medicaid reimbursement in 40 plus states. And we like this because CMS controls it, the federal government. They set it, they update it every week. And what it's doing is I'm saying, I have nothing to do with price. I'm giving a benchmark for our retail pharmacies. So we go out and contract with all the major national network of pharmacies, the independents, the PSAOs. And basically we say, we would like you to either sell the drug at NADAC plus your dispensing fee, or if you could do a better job, feel free to do it. Now, this is where trust comes in. There hasn't been trust in the pharmacy supply chain in 30 years because Mm -hmm. if I'm a pharmacy and I normally give savings to a traditional PBM, they're going to keep the money. It's never going to make it to the patient or plan or a disproportionate part. And so pharmacies are very hesitant to offer a better price. So we decided to do something very unique, which is we don't set price. We give you the ability, the pharmacy, better than benchmark, NADAC, if you would like to set a better price, please do. And the patient will always receive it. And the way that we prove that is all of our customers get the same price. Now, that seems like a pretty... You know, that seems normal, right? Shouldn't Mm -hmm. everyone get the same price? Popsicles and lampshades. Yeah, exactly. Well, think about it. You walk into a pharmacy and you go to the OTC counter and you pick up a bottle of Tylenol. Doesn't matter if you're insured or uninsured. Doesn't matter if you work for the biggest employer or the smallest. It's the same price, correct? And it will be the same price for months on end until the manufacturer says, I'm going to increase or decrease price based upon supply and demand, real market forces. That's not how prescriptions work. Right. You know, so you go 50 feet back to the register to the prescription counter and the price changes every second of every day. It's like Mm -hmm. spinning a roulette wheel. Am I today's winner or loser? Which to be fair is not unlike the stock market, but shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. No, but at least with the stock market, you can see the buy and sell side. True. Neither one can see the true price. And even if the pharmacy is willing to communicate a better price contractually, they can't. Right. You know, they've so you're saying, watched. so the difference is you're saying these are the prices, A, hmm? one big innovation, <laughs> here's how much it costs, B, we will not require you to charge a higher price if a lower price is available, and then C, the consumer will in fact know what the price is? Agreed. And what's interesting is because we use NADAC pricing, there's no massive price swings. So I often say if someone's filling a tour of a statin, let's just say in Washington state or in Florida or in New Hampshire or in Arizona, it's the same price mm-hmm. until the price is changed by CMS or to be fair to the retailer, they could say, hey, I've got $4 generics on Walmart or in Albertsons. I have $0 amoxicillin. I have specials on things. That's awesome. You know, let that value get to the end patient in the plan. And so to do this, we had to reimagine how claims are processed in patient service. So we had to write our own technology from the ground up. And this is very important because as I mentioned earlier, when you have the perfect market, there's no need for innovation. And, And, you know, to be clear, they just, my competitors scaled with people. 
And they never really invested in technology. Their technology is 20 or 30 years old, depending upon which software platform is. And you'd be like, well, is software that important? I said, yes. Mm -hmm. Think about any major operational system. I mean, imagine going to someone like Walmart or Amazon and saying you have no software for your supply chain logistics and operations. They would be like, I, I can't even do my job. There was no investment in workflow management and workflow automation because think about it. The highest cost against drugs are the people and how cheaply you could administrate a plan. And I always say there are two lines in healthcare. There's your top line, which is gross margin. And I will say this very clearly. My company does not purchase drugs cheaper than the largest entities in the pharmacy supply chain. But there's another line that's equal or in greater importance, which is what is your cost? What is your net margin? And so this is your administrative cost. So we built our own technology platform, Judy, Judy short for adjudication, and she is the brains behind our organization because everything runs on Judy. And we had this hypothesis, which is if we could create workflow automation and make our organization 70, 80% more efficient than my competitors, not only could I close the gap in their pricing advantage, I could beat them. I could offer cheaper prices. And more importantly, I would never be forced to take what I felt was the bad money, the right. money based upon spread. Well, and this is a really important point, because when you first talked about not taking the bad money, my investor brain went, hey, I hear you leaving money on the table. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that you've automated this process enough. You've introduced enough technology that your margins will make up for not taking the bad money. Like you believe that you'll be able to make the same amount of money by also introducing price transparency and maybe having, hopefully, it sounds like a downstream positive benefit on the industry. Oh, well, absolutely. And so, you know, I always go to the metrics that matter. So we're a customer first organization. So some people would say, well, you're leveraging all this technology, you know, does that Who is your, let me oh, interject please. there. Who is the customer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the customer that buys our services is an employer group. Typically, 500 employees or more. So, when, in the United States, when you hit 500 employees or more, you become self-insured. That means you're taking on the risk. I don't need a risk taker or carrier to cover my risk. I can pay for my own bills. And so, the employers, they're also municipalities. They're also union groups, mm -hmm. uh, hospitals, health systems. So anyone who has a benefit to be administrated, we can provide a solution for it. We can also power the back end for regional carriers and health plans again, so we can be that administrative platform. But the main buyer for you to think about is any large employer in the okay. United States Got We're it. providing mm -hmm. this administrative service. Gotcha. Okay. So how do you hope that or do you hope that the healthcare landscape will change overall? I'm imagining that this is a little bit like Robinhood, which came along and offered free, you know, stock trading. And then all of a sudden, everybody had to do that. Like, do you believe that you will have that transformative and impact on the industry? Do you even want to? Or is this your like competitive advantage forever? No, I hope everyone does. You know, I think the industry needs to think this way, you know, and I use Robinhood quite a bit. If you think about it, once upon a time to make a stock trade in the 90s, you know, I, I believe the rule is you could keep 10% of the value of the trade. It almost sounds criminal. People used to charge hundreds of dollars for a stock trade. And then companies like E-Trade and Ameritrade said, I'll do it for $59.95 and $19.95 and 
And then Robinhood comes along and says, I'll do it for zero. Yeah. And then in my Chase account, they'll do it for zero because you're setting the market for what the true administrative fee should be. And so I do believe exactly as you're saying is you're going to expose what the real price and value is to administrate a plan on behalf of a self-insured entity. And that will settle itself based upon the services and what the market can bear. So I completely agree with your example. I hope everybody gets here. It's our advantage today, but Mm -hmm. I believe that others will understand the importance of this. And I hope many of them use our technology to get there. I would like nothing more than to liberate drug prices on behalf of the U.S. consumer. Yeah, us too. Um, And then talk to me about the sales pipeline. How hard is it for your customers to switch? Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, switching is very easy. This is our calling card because we have a modern technology platform. So my competitors take months to set up a new plan and it's a real headache. But if you were to speak to any of my customers, we literally plow through this in hours to set up a new plan because we have a a natural language framework, which enables my people to very easily set up a new plan design and benefit and do the interoperability and the integration, not to bore you with the details, but we connect to a lot of different things, including the carrier for accumulators and eligibility feeds. But the whole point of it is, it's a seamless process that's an ease, very easy to do and to switch. And this helps quite a bit. But I think what you're trying to get to, and part of the question is, how hard is it to convince someone to move to someone like us? And yeah. so we've been around like you've now. You've described like a pretty, yeah. you know, well-integrated mob operation. And sometimes those can be a little hard to disrupt without ending up in a barrel. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, completely agree. <laughs> so, but part of it is I often say there are no shortcuts in healthcare. So if anyone says, hey, my sister is a big wig executive at this Fortune 500 company and they're just going to move their business to us. I. I'm like, I've never seen that because normally someone is going to say, well, wait a second, how many 200,000 life accounts do you have? And if you're new to the business, your answer is going to be zero and they're going to be like, hit the road. So, you know, no one has a tolerance for risk when it comes to benefits. So what I say is there's no shortcuts in healthcare. So we've been at this for four and a half years. And what I often say is I never want to go back. I never want to go back and sell four years ago because it's miserable. Think about it, Molly. You're my customer and I'm trying to convince you. And I say, hey, here's the reason why you should use Capital RX. The first question is going to be like, well, how many other customers do you have? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be like, including you? (laughs) And you're going to be like, oh, that's very cute. And they're like, how long have you been in business for? And you're going to be like, including this month? Right. And you're going to be like, are you trying not to get the sale? But I'm trying to be honest. But my point is, You start by selling 500 life cases to get to 1,000 life cases to 2,000 to 4 and 8 and 16. And I make this point all the time because I want people to understand there are no shortcuts in healthcare. You build upon your trust score. So if I've been scored to service 10,000 life cases, yeah, I might be able to sell a 20,000 life case, but I'm not selling a 200,000 life case anytime soon. And this is what we had to build upon. And also, If you think about it, statistically speaking, as I stated earlier, depending upon your accounting for market control, the big three, you know, Cigna, United, and CVS control 80% of the self-insured marketplace. So 80% of the time, I've got to displace a Fortune 20 company. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's never easy, but it gets easier each year. And part of it is because our performance and our track record. But it's also, I give a huge amount of thanks to my customers. They're our best sellers. My best brand ambassadors, hands down, are my customers. I have more sales for my customers talking to other people, be it at conferences, at just get-togethers, people knowing people in industry, HR people are pretty tight. Mm-hmm. And they'll just say, oh my goodness, I'm having the best experience with Capital RX. You should, and you should speak to them. And mm-hmm. I think that goes back to that trust and strength of your brand. And timing, right? Timing matters. You're, you're doing this at this moment when, as you described earlier, this conversation is really increasing. I also want to ask you yeah. how this, how, if at all, because there's also been news um, about drug prices specifically around like Mark Cuban's new company, Cost Plus yeah. Pharmacy. How, how does this interact with that, if at all, or how could it? And is no, it no, part it of this ecosystem of like, let's upend this? Yeah. So if you think about it, my competitors create walls. They only want to direct drug spend to their channels, especially when it comes to like delivery or home delivery, like Mark Cuban Cost Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the opposite model. So we're agnostic in our network. So I'll take anyone in our network. Remember, my job is to administrate and find the best price and the best service. So why wouldn't I want Mark's company to give me inventory and price? Right. Right. And the answer is yes. You know what I mean? And it's the same, not just Mark, but anyone. And I want to make this clear. It's at retail. We allow any pharmacy in our network, as long as obviously they're uh, in compliance and in good standing with the state. I always want to make the point of that. But I think the other part of it is I don't care if you have a mail channel. You know, I'm saying give me a price list and I'll post it. And if people want to use your services because you're offering a lower price, fantastic. You know, that's the way the market should be. If I'm truly an administrator, what I want to do is help my client and their patients find the lowest price and bridge that and communicate to that to them. So, yes, the answer is I applaud anyone like Mark and others that have mail and delivery services that have figured out ways through partnerships and direct contracting to provide lower drug prices to the U.S. public. I am all for it. Because remember, I don't make any money on fulfillment. This is what makes me very different in our organization from our competitors. We do not make money on the filling of a prescription or the spread pricing or the acquisition cost or the rebating or anything around that. So it makes it very easy for us to make partnerships and direct people to the appropriate channel. And then last question, do you think you know, when we look at seemingly intractable problems like this, I'm a climate tech investor, so I, you know, am acutely aware of this. Do you think that disruption and competition ultimately are going to have more impact than these sort of slow walk regulatory moves? Or do they have to go hand in hand? Um, I've personally never built a business plan or model around federal intervention or oversight. So I genuinely always believe in innovation and competition driving a market. I do believe it's important for the federal government to lean in and review many of these rules and practices that have kind of emerged over 20 years, not necessarily for myself and competition, but who's the largest payer in the country? It's the federal government. For Medicare, Medicaid, 340B, DOD, VA, take their pick. They buy billions of dollars of drugs. I would like my federal government to, one, get a fair price because they're not. 
it's by their own omission, you know, omission, you know. And so if you look at the COB report from February of 2021, it compares net drug prices across things like DOD, VA, Medicare, Medicaid, 340B. And it's not like really tight, like, oh, well, we have, you know, the best price in the United States, and that's what we've negotiated for all of my billing. Uh, it's the exact opposite. Yeah, There's yeah. a delta on net cost of up to 150%. So I often joke, if the federal government can't get it right, what chance does the average patient? And so I do believe that leaning in on a regulatory standpoint and reviewing things are healthy, but I do believe innovation is the only way and through fair competition, it's the only way the industry is truly going to make a monumental leap in the private sector space. AJ Loyacono is CEO of Capital RX. Thanks for fighting the good fight. Good luck. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. Good luck with the mob. I know I'm watching a lot of <laughs> Sopranos. But <laughs> I'm from Jersey. We'll be, it's okay. We'll be looking out for you. <laughs> what a great interview. Well done again, Molly Wood. Thanks, man. And thanks to Lon for coming on, talking about streaming with us. And tomorrow, ah. uh, we'll have a great interview. Jason is going to be talking to... Praying for Exits, the yes. anonymous uh, VC satirical account that, you know, as with all sat satire is often quite on the nose. Yeah, pretty, pretty poignant stuff. Uh, and then we'll have another uh, OK Boomer segment from producer Rachel reporting live <laughs> from the disastrous NFT NYC. <laughs> see Doesn't you tomorrow. seem like such a disaster. Rachel's having a lot of fun. You're gonna, oh, is she, she's <laughs> living her best life again. She's seems living like my it. best life again. She's living your best life. We'll see I you can't tomorrow. go. This week start. I can't go. You can't we go. We're this busy. daily show. We're tied to this yeah. desk every day. But Rachel's out there. She's like living our best life. Wow. She way is. to go. Good job, Rachel. See you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs> Bye.